Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eric Siegel, chair of the club's personal growth forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our speaker is Ellen Grace O'Brien, the author of The Jewel of Abundance and director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. Ellen is an esteemed meditation teacher, a radio host, and an award-winning poet who uses poetry to express the mystical experience beyond words and thought. Ordained by a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda, she has been teaching Kriya Yoga philosophy and practice nationally and internationally for over three decades, and has been praised by people as varied as Deepak Chopra, the philosopher, and Scott Kreens, who was CEO of the major internet equipment supplier, Juniper Networks. Her website is www.ellengraceobrien.com. As quoted in Ellen's book, Krishna says in the Gita, quote, it is better to do one's own work and fail in the attempt than to do the work of another and succeed. Today, Ellen is going to discuss how to find one's life's purpose from a spiritual perspective and how to move forwards towards its realization. She will also show us a way to meditate and will share some methods for staying focused on one's goals, even when tired, overwhelmed, doubtful, or resistant. It is now my pleasure to ask you to join me in welcoming to the Commonwealth Club of California, our speaker, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Well, good evening, everyone. It's really a delight to be here with you, and thank you for coming out in the rain uh, to find your way here. I want to offer my thanks to Eric Siegel for uh, supporting the program and to uh, Bob and Nancy Weeks. Um, Bob Weeks was on the program committee for the Commonwealth Club for many years, and it was Bob's um, bright idea that um, I come here. So I'm so delighted. I'm delighted to be with you. And um, I thought I would begin with a story that uh, Eric actually pulled from my book um, as part of the description for the program today. And in this story, there is a guy on horseback, and he is careening through the center of town. And his friend is standing on the sidelines, and he yells out to him, Where are you going? And he yells back, I don't know. Ask the horse. (laughs) And it's such a wonderful fable for our times, isn't it? That sometimes we can just feel like our whole life is carried away by the pressures of our life, um, by the ever-present distractions of just trying to stay focused on what is important to us. So um, today I'm going to dive into that fable a little bit more and talk about how it is possible for us to find uh, more of a focus in our lives, basically um, to be able to live with heart and meaning and higher purpose. I've been asking the question, the one that I explored in this new book, The Jewel of Abundance, is it possible for us 
to thrive and prosper and be successful in life without losing our soul along the way. And how do we do that? That's really, that's really the question. And uh, of course, I came um, in my path of study of yoga philosophy, of Kriya Yoga philosophy in particular, to find the guidance that I needed in my own life um, to have that, to be able to be focused on a path in life that has heart and meaning for me and to not lose my way. But it wasn't always that way. And in fact, it was just the opposite. So I'll share a little bit with you about that. And as Eric said, within our time together, we'll also have an opportunity to meditate together for a few minutes. So I want to start with asking the question, how many of you already meditate? How many meditators do we have in the room? Wonderful. Okay. So either way is fine. If you meditate, you'll get a chance to do it and you do it because you like it, I'm sure. And those of you who haven't meditated yet, um, we'll just have a little taste of what it makes possible. I'd like to begin um, just sharing a little bit about this energy that we are born with in our life, all of us. This is from the introduction to my book, and it's called Thrive for the Sake of Your Soul. We are born to thrive, all of us. If you look, you can see it. Everything in nature, including us, is geared toward growth and the fulfillment of its purpose. The sapling red delicious apple tree in the garden stretches toward the sun, and given the right conditions, it blossoms and bears sweet fruit. And you can see the beginnings of that now. This as spring starts to happen, I can see it on my neighbor's apple tree. How we delight to witness that same impetus of blossoming growth in a baby. We applaud as she first lifts her head, then rocks on all fours, then crawls forth to pursue adventure and taste the world. What next? She stands up, speaks, falls down, gets up, and runs off to school with the innate imperative to thrive that is her birthright. The inclination to thrive, to prosper, and fulfill our potential is the natural impulse of our divine capacity as spiritual beings. The same energy that gives birth to stars in the cosmos inspires music, literature, architecture, medicine, dance, technology, any and all forms of creative expression and manifestation. That energy is unlimited. It pervades all of nature relentlessly encouraging all of life to realize its purpose and its full potential. Thrive, thrive, it implores. It whispers in our dreams and stirs our imagination with its evolutionary call. Prosper, live your full life. 
Live your life with heart and meaning. Do what you came here to do. Follow the impulse to prosper and become all that you truly are in your fullness. Now, as a child, do you remember being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think we're still asking kids that question today. And I remember being asked that question, and I remember thinking about it. But I didn't really have anything other than cultural expectations, you know, to guide my way as I thought about well, what what will I do? Um, I didn't really have a context for my dreams. I wasn't aware of any other structure other than cultural expectations to illumine my path ahead. And over the years, I've heard many um, share a similar story. And many have commented, wouldn't it be great if life came with an instruction manual? (laughs) And of course, as we look, you know, there are many different kinds of instruction manuals we find in life. But the particular one I'm going to be sharing with you today is an ancient manual for how to live a happy, healthy, prosperous, fulfilled life life that comes right out of the Vedic system. Thousands of years ago, four universal life goals, four principles that are for all people at all times. And I have found them to be a great secret, um, a great support for how not to lose our way in life, how to not be um, distracted, but be able to find that life of heart and meaning. So when we think about how do we not lose our way, There's a couple of things that come to my mind and that I'm going to be sharing with you today. First is, of course, we need a map. We need a map. But even with a map, we need to know where we are first. And I know we have GPS now, but that also doesn't quite work if you don't know where you are. And I just discovered that because I was uh, doing outreach in Seattle, and <laughs> I, I had a friend there um, supporting me in that trip, and we decided one morning we would go to this restaurant that the phone said was 0.7 miles from us. And I decided to try out my first experience of walking GPS. Now, in the car, it's another matter because it tells you, you know, uh, rerouting, <laughs> rerouting, you need to turn around, right? So, but my walking thing didn't tell me that. So after we had gone about two miles um, <laughs> and the 0.7 mile restaurant was still another two miles away, um, I, I took a good look and I discovered that there's a little thing on there that's an arrow <laughs> that shows where you are and what direction you need to be headed. So um, I didn't realize that, but now I know. So I won't make that mistake again. So we need a map, but we also need to know where we are. And so two principal skills, and these skills are skills that um, 
our foundational skills on the path of yoga study and practice. Now, when many people think of yoga today in the West, they think of exercise, right? Um, but Kriya Yoga comes from the ancient philosophy of yoga. It's one of the six, yoga is one of the six systems of Indian philosophy. So it's not a religion, but it's a philosophy. It is how, how to know the truth of what you are, how to find yourself, and then how to live an ethical and awakened life, how to find your purpose and how to express it. So I learned those skills on this path, and it made all the difference in my life. But I want to tell you about actually having learned them much earlier in life. It was probably my first spiritual lesson, but I didn't know it at the time. And only now when I look back as um, following this path of yoga philosophy and what it has taught me, I look back and I think, oh, there's something I learned at a very long, young age that has given me those two skills. So I'm going to go back before I go forwards with you. I was about five years old. My parents moved from Oakland. I was born in Oakland. And we moved from Oakland out to the suburbs of Hayward. And I know, I mean, I, I was privileged to be able to do that because my working class family could afford a home. And that's when they were um, cutting down the orchards and building all those uh, suburban tract homes. And um, so, as I said, it was a privilege for us to be able to, to own a home. But at the same time, it was quite... Um, culturally deprived to move from the city out to the suburbs where there was just a landscape of these houses that were all the same. And uh, there wasn't a Commonwealth Club in Hayward, and there really wasn't much happening uh, art-wise or, or spirituality-wise that, that I knew of as, as a little girl. But we did have a strip mall at that time. <laughs> and so the mall was the Mecca. The mall was the place that you went for inspiration. And sure enough, I found it there because right in that strip mall was Miss Margie's dance studio. And for a seven-year-old girl, Miss Margie was a goddess. She she was bright red hair, curly, and black glasses with rhinestones, purple leotard with a belt, fishnet stockings, and high-heeled tap shoes. So what Miss Margie taught me was how to turn without losing my balance. Two things. One, first, you have to center yourself right where you are. You have to begin right here, like where the arrow is on your walking GPS. Begin clearly where you are. 
And then she told us, you need a point of focus in the room so that every time you turn, you return to that focus. So you turn and you check it. You turn and you check it again and again. And I found this was the most marvelous secret to not losing my balance and not falling over. Because sure enough, when I forgot to pay attention to what I was supposed to look at when I came around, I would fall over. Now, this path that we have in life for living a, a life of heart and meaning, for not losing our balance, for not getting carried away by distraction, for not getting lost in the pull of it, is really not so different. Those two basic skills. One, learning how to connect to our own self, our own authentic self, let the mind get quiet, tune in, just connect. And then having a focus for our life that we can come back to time and time again. A focus about how we keep our life in balance. And that's the other part that I'm going to share with you um, this evening. So let's start with the part about how we connect to ourself. So that story that I began with, with the guy on the horseback careening through town, who says, I don't know where I'm going, just uh, ask the horse. In the Eastern tradition, that, that metaphor is used to tell us something about the nature of the mind. So the horse symbolizes the senses that run off. In, in terms of what they want, right? Our, our senses, our, our, our tastes, our, our touch, our sight. And then the reins, um, sim- they symbolize the mind. And in particular, our, our, our ability to discern and to guide the senses and that sensory aspect of mind. And then the rider of the horse is, is said to be our authentic self. That given uh, living a conscious life is able to direct then the faculty of discernment and the sense mind and the senses itself. So when we meditate, we use a very simple procedure to rein ourselves in. So in, in, in other words, to pull our attention back from the senses, from the thinking mind itself, and just be anchored in what we would call our essence of being, our just our conscious awareness, if you will. So that's what we're going to do. And the simplest tool that we have for that is the breath. And that's great because we all have it. I mean, you need it. <laughs> we all have it and it's free and it, it is connected to the mind itself. So what I mean by that is if you've been meditating for a while, you know this, but if you're new to meditation, I want you to check it out. Ideally, you'll try this out after you, after you leave and for a few days for a little while to see how it works for you. When the breath gets quiet, 
your mind will get quiet. And when we look at that fable, you know, what is this horse that is running away with the fellow's life is really the mind. And for us, that's kind of familiar, isn't it? I mean, to just feel like your thoughts are racing, um, your worries, your concerns, your attention, your distraction, running off with yourself. So with this meditation, we learn how to pull our energy within and how to let that mind become quiet so we can just connect to our essential nature. So shall we try that? All right. I'm going to sit down and do this with you. Ideally, uh, for meditation, just have a comfortable upright posture so your spine is straight, your head is erect. And a good way to begin is to just take a good deep breath and let it out. And another good deep breath. And if you feel comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Just place your hands comfortably in your lap or on your thighs, your feet flat on the floor. And simply begin by noticing your breathing. And by that, I mean feel the air as it comes in your nostrils. Feel the coolness of the air. Feel the air as it touches the back of your throat. Feel the lungs expand, your abdomen expand. And then with exhalation, Feel how the air has become a little warmer as it has circulated through your lungs. So feel the cool air coming in. Notice the rising of your chest and your belly and then the falling and the warmer air moving out through your nostrils. And if you'd like to, you can use a word along with your breath to help focus your attention. You 
You can just try the word peace. So with inhalation, inwardly, mentally say peace. And with exhalation, once again, peace. It's very simply, not trying to change the breath, just noticing the breath and mentally saying peace as you breathe in. And peace as you breathe out. And after you, sit for a little while, noticing your breath mentally, just saying the word peace with inhalation and peace with exhalation. you'll notice that your breathing begins to slow down and become more subtle. And it may feel uh, like an effort to keep repeating the word, Keep mentally offering it. So just let the word drop away. If you like, you can bring your inner focus to what is called the spiritual eye that point in the forehead just above and between the eyebrows or the very top of your head. You can put your attention there. Just let your attention be lifted up. And simply look within, listen within, let the body be relaxed.
And if you find that you become involved with thoughts, you notice that you started just thinking and your attention is captivated by thought, activity, then just come back to noticing your breath again, feeling the breath coming in your nostrils and moving out again. And you can do that for as long as you like. Just give your attention and awareness an opportunity to expand beyond being engaged in thought. Just to feel relaxed and centered and at peace, connected to yourself. And when you get ready to conclude your time of meditation, it's always good to just sit for a moment when you're not trying to meditate, but just notice any change in your body or mind. And then just take a moment to share your peace with others. Just bring to mind those close to you that you care deeply about. Take a moment to offer your peace to them. And then beyond to your larger community, those you work with, those in your neighborhood, share your peace. And then we offer our peace to all people everywhere. Just become aware of people all over the world. We just offer our peace and our good wishes for their well-being. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes and Bring your attention back to your body and back to the room, back to being present. So for those of you who don't already meditate, that is such a simple way to meditate each day. And you can meditate for as long as you like. You can meditate for five minutes a day, and that will be helpful. Or you can meditate for ten minutes 
or 30 minutes or an hour. But the main thing is every day to pause, every day to just connect with yourself, to be present to yourself, to let your thoughts and feelings settle so they're not running away with you and you have that deeper connection to yourself. So as I explained, the early spiritual lesson I learned from Miss Margie, first connect with yourself, know how to do that and do it regularly. That's the critical factor if you want to live a purposeful life. And then have a map. So the map I want to share with you that I learned in this uh, yoga tradition that I'm a part of comes from the Vedic uh, teachings. And it, it's a map for living a life in dynamic balance. And there are four parts to it, four aims for us in life to do this. And if you pay attention to what these aims are and how you're living them in your life, I think you'll find that they're really a key to uh, living a purposeful life, living a fulfilled life, living a life that is in balance. So these four universal goals... Um, from the Vedas. I'm going to share the Sanskrit name for them with you because um, it has a, a deeper meaning than goals or life aims. And that word is called the Purushartas. Now, that word translated into English means for the sake of the soul. For the sake of of the soul. So these are four universal life aims um, for the sake of the soul. In other words, they're, they're goals for all of us. They're things that we need to have on our life map so that we don't lose our soul along the way, so that we don't lose touch with what really has heart and meaning for us. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So, the first on the list of those four goals, the one that comes first, is called dharma. And dharma means um, to live with higher purpose. Not just any purpose in life, but to live your life with a higher purpose. And what that means really is to have a sense of your place in the universe. You know, that, that there is... Um, an order to the universe. There is um, a reason why the stars and planets don't run into each other, that there is this um, higher order. And we are all a part of that. Nature is a part of that. So living with higher purpose is learning how to cooperate with that divine order or higher purpose of the universe itself. So we all have a place in that. We all have a purpose. We all have um, a way that we're here um, to express. So I want to say a little bit more about Dharma. 
because uh, it's a word now, like the word yoga, that has entered the English lexicon. And people think about dharma. And um, what I've noticed in the West is that just like we have equated yoga with exercise, we have equated dharma with a job. You know, we say, oh, that's his dharma, right? And usually when somebody says that, what they mean is, well, that's that person's job. That's what they're here to do. But dharma really means a thing being what it is. So it is something expressing inherently what it is. In other words, we could say the dharma of a door is to open and close. The dharma of the ocean is to express itself in waves. It, it has a purpose that it expresses. So when we think of dharma as purpose, it's not a job, although your job may be a way for you to express your purpose. But I think that one of the reasons that people get so confused about purpose in this deep sense is they equate their purpose with their vocation. But, and, and today that's even more disastrous because as I understand it with young people, you know, they are to anticipate changing their vocation several times in their lifetime. Is that not correct? So, you know, if your dharma is a particular job and then you have to change your job into some different field, then what happens to your dharma? But if you understand dharma as your higher purpose that has to do with expressing inherently what you are, then whatever job you have can be a vehicle for that. So we think of dharma as being our authentic expression and the work that we do in the world as being a way for us to um, learn about that, a way for us to um, share with others, a way to uncover more about who we are. So dharma is the nature of a thing. And for us as human beings, dharma is our own authentic nature. Dharma also means uh, support. And so that has to do with that mm, goal that we have to learn how to cooperate with the energy of the universe itself. As I read in the beginning, there is... Um, an energy moving through all of nature that wants to bring everything to fulfillment of its purposes. And we're not outside of that. We all are here to express our inherent uh, gifts, our qualities. And we, we, we feel those, we learn about those through our inspirations, through our dreams. This part of our, of our duties, of our responsibility as well, which is another meaning of Dharma. Dharma also means duty or responsibility. So that first universal life goal is to learn to live with higher purpose. And that means learn to express 
our authentic purpose as the human beings that we are. Learn to give our gifts, our particular talents, um, in service of the greater good, in service of the well-being of all. So dharma is connected to the life of all. It's not um, personal in that way. It's transpersonal. It's connected um, to everyone and to everything. So we have dharma. Then the second goal is arta. And that goal means wealth. So this ancient program, thousands of years old, said, okay, you're here. These are your four life goals. Live with higher purpose. Learn how to prosper. But there is a particular relationship between prosperity and purpose in this system. So I suspect our guy with the horse in the opening story may have put wealth and prosperity first and left purpose out. So off he was running um, towards his financial goals and somehow left his true life purpose out of it. So in this system, wealth, prosperity is there to serve your higher purpose, not the other way around. The third goal, which is just fabulous coming out of a spiritual system, is comma or pleasure. So this says, live with higher purpose, learn how to prosper, and enjoy your life while you're at it. Don't forget to enjoy your life. And remember, I said that this the term for these four goals is purushartas, which means for the sake of the soul. So they all relate to the natural inclinations of our authentic being. So that which we are wants to cooperate with life itself. You know, we want to belong, we want to express, we want to thrive, we want to prosper. We also want to enjoy life because the very nature of the soul as it is taught in this system is bliss. And when the mythologist Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, that's what he was talking about. Learn how to express yourself fully and authentically and to follow that joy that is innately within you. That is the bliss of the soul. The fourth goal is called moksha, which means freedom or liberation of consciousness or enlightenment. So I always have to say when I get to that fourth goal, because I see people kind of go, you know, because we have a particular prejudice, I think, that enlightenment is only for a select few. And it is really not something um, that we have on our goal list um, in our lifetime. Higher purpose, yes. Learning to prosper, yes. Enjoying life, yes. Enlightenment, we're not so sure. Am I right? But this universal system says, no, 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 wait a minute. Everybody's here to wake up. Everybody's here to be enlightened to know the truth of what they are and what life is all really about, and also to experience ultimate freedom. 
So in the yoga system, you know, that is, that is described as knowing the truth of what we are and being free to express in the world without being um, constrained by uh, patterns in the mind or circumstances around us. So we would go back to the guy on the horse, unenlightened. The horse is running the show. Here, if we have the vision of someone leading an enlightened life, they can be at one with the horse, um, but leading along the journey in a peaceful way towards a clear destination. So those are the four goals of life. And in the um, introduction to my book, the writer uh, Phil Goldberg said he liked to think of these um, four universal aims of life as the four legs of a table. And I thought that was such a great metaphor for thinking of them, because if any one of them is broken or not tended to, then our life is out of balance. And that is really the gift I want to give you today about having a map for your life. So learning how to connect to yourself, being aware of those four universal goals, asking yourself, you know, what is my higher purpose? How do I prosper in every way? And here in this goal of Arta, when we talk about prosperity, it's not just financial wealth. It's prospering in our relationships, it's our health, it's our creative ability, it's all of that. So we ask ourselves, how do I fully prosper? Am I enjoying life? Or am I, you know, putting that off and somehow thinking that after I get those other two in place, you know, then I'll enjoy, maybe when I retire, I'll enjoy life. And do I have a goal for myself to be fully awake and aware in this lifetime? So having those four goals in balance are a wonderful way to live a purposeful life, a life of heart and meaning. So I hope you have questions for me because I think it's about that time. And Eric promised me that here at the Commonwealth Club, you really like to be interactive. So let's do that. And um, it'll be really nice to hear what you'd like to know instead of me trying to guess and tell you that. So Eric's going to tell us how that will work. Okay. So we're going to have two mic runners. And if you want to ask a question, just raise your hand when you're recognized one of us, the two of us, will come up and give you the mic. Hi, my name is Rahul. A lot of people say higher purpose can kind of be equated to enlightenment as well. So how does your number one relate to number four? Um, because some people's higher purpose can be enlightenment. Absolutely. Um, could everybody hear the question? Yeah. Um, here in this system, as I see it, Dharma is is really related to living our life in harmony with the universe, with all that is, leading an ethical life, 
um, leading a life that allows us to contribute to the greater good. Now, that also relates to somebody who's fully awake, who's enlightened, would be living an ethical life, would be contributing to life. But um, I would say the distinction is with Dharma, it is about um, finding our place in life and learning um, how to express ourselves fully in cooperation with the infinite, with the universe itself. And, you know, enlightenment, waking up fully. The the thing about those two goals that I find so powerful in this system is that they act as guides and constraints for wealth and pleasure. I mean, we know ourselves, right? You know, if wealth and pleasure were first, we might never get around to dharma and, uh, you know, enlightenment. So um, they, they really are uh, constraints about... Um, Yes, it's important for us to learn to prosper. It's important for us to enjoy life. But when we look at them paired up, like enjoying life next to enlightenment, it means we have to learn, you know, what brings us the highest happiness. You know, what, what is the distinction between pleasure that we get from the senses, happiness that we get from accomplishment, and the ultimate happiness that comes from freedom. So there's a slight um, distinction in that way. Is there more to your question? Okay. Hi, my, my name is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Um, I'm just wondering how exactly do I find my purpose? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> few other people want to know that too. Um, well, as I mentioned, I think one of the um, challenges that people have in trying to find their purpose is they're, they're trying to think about what vocation it would be. You know, what is the best work for me in terms of my life purpose? But the way I see it is that our purpose is the expression of our authentic self. So one of the things that I um, encourage people to do is to look at who you've always been. So sometimes people can look back into their childhood, for example, and see qualities that were there early on. You know, we, we look at children, even children in the same family, right? They have different qualities that are that are apparent early on. So, you know, some children maybe are very compassionate. You know, they're the ones who are always wanting to bring in a pet and take care of it. Or there are some who are, you know, theatrical and they're wanting to put on plays. And there are others who are starting clubs and wanting to be a leader. Others who are writing at a very early age. So if you look back at your childhood or you listen to some reflections from people who knew you at that time, very often you'll find those shining qualities that are inherent to your authentic nature that um, have, have bloomed, you know, as you go through life. Then finding your purpose is discovering how it is in life that you can fully actualize those inherent potentials within you. That's how I see it. So that the kind of work that you do will be 
um, ideally an arena where those authentic qualities that are uniquely you in that combination can be fully actualized and expressed. So usually, you know, it's not that hard to learn about your higher purpose because it's always been with you because it's authentically who you are. And people um, have a hard time finding it because they're looking at other people. You know, like they're looking at somebody else and thinking, well, you know, should I be doing that? Um, but look to yourself and who you've always been and what has always been your own heart's desire. And I think you're likely to find your purpose right there in who you've always been. Uh, Thank you very much. Mm. Certainly a very good introduction. Thank you. You started saying that it's a philosophy. Yes. The methodology, the the principle that you discussed. Yes. The philosophy. Yes. Um, Does this philosophy... um, so they believe in one God? I'm sorry. Could you, Does this philosophy believe in God, in one God? Um, yes and no. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, yoga philosophy, as one of the six systems of Indian philosophy, the primary text for that is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Um, which tells about how to meditate, you know, how to uh, live a, a spiritually awakened life, how to live an ethical life. Um, but it is not, um, there is no particular deity that people are um, subscribed to or asked to believe in. There is some mention of God, if a person, it says if a person has faith in God, that can make their meditation easier. But there is no, um, in the yoga system, one may either believe in God or not. Much of what you've described sounds very similar to Buddhism, and I'm curious about what the similarities and differences are. Well, I don't... um I have not studied Buddhism, so I can't really answer that question except to say that, um, you know, Buddhism also early on came out of the Vedic system. There are ways that they parted later, but um, some of those philosophical principles are the same, as far as I understand it. Are are there levels of enlightenment? (laughs) Are there levels of enlightenment? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think we could say there are levels of awakening, um, but it, that question sounds a little bit to me like, are there levels of being pregnant? And um, so uh, I think you're either pregnant or you're not, or you're either you know enlightened or you're not. Um, but I do think there are levels of awakening. Um, and by that, I mean that over time with spiritual practice, a practice like meditation, um, that the mind becomes more clarified. Um, and we do begin to see more clearly. So we begin to know more about the truth of our being. We begin to know more about mm, the way the universe works um, and things like that. So 
so there is a gradual awakening that occurs. But as far as I understand it, you know, when somebody wakes up is enlightened, um, they're not degrees of that. Thank you. Um, I was wondering how to address what I always analyze as conflicts between living an ethical life and finding your joy. An example is um, if, you, if you're a person who likes to meet new people and experience different things in new cultures, to get there you get on a plane and you're um, causing um, uh, climate, you're helping to mm-hmm. exacerbate climate change. So what are your suggestions there? That's really a good question, isn't it? I think that um, it, it does come back to how those four goals are to be held in balance. And, and that actually gives rise to the question that you're asking, which is, okay, if I experience joy from this, but when I look at it, I don't think it's dharmic. In other words, I don't think it's ethical. Um, because of the impact on the planet. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So then you, you, we're all faced with those choices all the time, you know, and we have to weigh, you know, how, what is the good that will come out of it? And what is the joy that will come out of it? And can you actually have joy if you're doing something that is going against your own principles? Um, in my book, not usually, you know, that, that usually the the Dharma card, you know, being in harmony with what we know to be true, um, is the first order. So that it's the conflict. And, you know, I don't have an answer to it. I just think that it's beautiful that we have, that's why these goals are so supportive because they make us ask those questions. And in our, in our world today and in our culture, uh, specifically, we see a lot that is out of balance. You know, we see, um, one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, which is about Arta, really, which is about true wealth, is because I see many people who have really good um, focus on dharma in their life, living with higher purpose, but they really scrape to get the resources they need to do the good work that they're here to do. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people with a lot of money um, who are operating in the world um, without any relationship to dharma or higher purpose or ethical goodwill for other people. So those goals, you know, in order to live a life, a purposeful life, of heart and meaning, they, they have to be in balance. And um, one of the things I've always liked about the yoga tradition is it doesn't spell it out for us. You know, it, it doesn't answer your question. It says, you, yourself, must answer that question. Um, just a quick question for you. Uh, can your job be uh, your uh, dharma? I think your job can support your dharma. I would put it that way. I don't think your job is your dharma. 
your your job is a way for you to express your authentic being. So ideally, you have a job that allows you to do that. So it's a dharmic fit for you. Um, Eric uh, started out the introduction tonight with that quote from the Bhagavad Gita that said, um, it's better to do uh, your own work and fail in your attempt than to do the work of another and succeed. So that tells us something else about work, right? That it is not necessarily what you do and you're good at, but it is what can help you bring forth your potentials. Um, so I don't, I think ideally your job will help you do that and it will allow you to be expressing, um, you know, your deepest self and the gifts that you're here to offer to the world. So where does happiness fit in this picture? Do you have to achieve all four to achieve true happiness? <laughs> or? No, that's such a good question. You know, we're, we're really to have all four in front of it. You know, it's our map. So, you know, sometimes people become really involved on the spiritual journey, right? Or the quest for enlightenment and they become very austere. You know, even we find that in the Buddhist story, right? You know, so much austerity that he, you know, just about killed himself and said, uh oh, that's not the way. So he'd left, uh, you know, happiness and pleasure and joy out of it. So, we need to include it along the way because even let's say, you know, you have the perfect job and you're expressing your dharma and you're bringing in plenty of money, um, but you're not enjoying your life, then what's the purpose? You know, you've lost touch with yourself then because yourself, according to this philosophy, is joy itself. The bliss is of the soul. So happiness is all along the way, all along the way through life. Now, does that mean that, you know, every day, you know, we're going to be happy and we're never going to be sad? No, it doesn't mean that. It, it means that um, we learn about happiness, for one thing. As I mentioned um, before, we learn about how we experience happiness. You know, where does it come from? How do we have lasting happiness, you know, versus something, you know, sometimes we get something and we're happy and then we lose it and we're sad. So this involves us paying attention to um, what actually brings us happiness. In the teaching in the Yoga Sutra have something very amazing to offer on that. And it says, person who is established in contentment experiences supreme happiness. So then we have to say, well, sh shoot, what does that mean? How does that work? You know, because I always thought it was the other way around. I thought, you know, well, uh, I'll, I'll do this. I'll get that. I'll accomplish that. And then I'll be happy. I'll have the happiness of me and then I'll be content. Right. But, that, as we understand it, is kind of like this ever-receding carrot. Ever-receding. So this says, no, no, no. What, what you do, you learn to meditate, and you learn how to find that peace in yourself, that contentment. And from that, you will actually know 
how to have happiness all the time, regardless of circumstances. And you're, you, you have a, an awareness that's large enough to contain everything that life brings, which is sometimes sadness, sometimes grief, but you don't have to lose yourself uh, along the way. We have time for two more questions. Uh, yeah, th- thank you. Sorry about asking two questions now. Um, <laughs> the criticism of this philosophy, it's been, you probably are aware of it, is that create, create a situation where one individual becomes more selfish as opposed to the ultimate goal, as you mentioned, is serving. Yes. A, sort of a contradiction in here that the focus of enjoyment, self-enjoyment, creates a situation of being more selfish. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book. Because <laughs> it's a problem. And it's a problem with um, prosperity, too, because we've had, a, you know, a big, <clears throat> we have a goal, you know, in our culture, like to be wealthy, right? And even in certain uh, religious um Traditions. There's a teaching about wealth and um, salvation and, and all of that. But in this tradition, the wealth and the happiness is not um, isolated. Because you, as a, even though you're an individual, are connected to everyone and everything. So you cannot just achieve that in isolation. So there's a fundamental principle about how life works that says that's why these goals are between dharma and moksha. That's why we don't have just happiness and wealth. We have them in this container that says you're connected to everyone and everything. And you cannot have your own well-being in isolation. And that should be clear enough to us today, right, in this planet that we live on. But yet it is not clear. Thus, the book. Hey, I'm Reza. There was a question about a job and dharma. Yeah. Do you agree if I say you can make your job to dharma, if you make out of your job a vocation. Yes, I think people can. And ideally, that's the right relationship with job, right? That you're, that you're finding a purpose, you're finding a way to serve, and you're finding a way to develop yourself as a human being. Then that would be your dharma. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm interested in the perspective. You're talking about... Uh, art, uh, part of the prosperity was prosperity in relationships. Can you go into a little bit more detail in terms of what that tells us in terms of what is a prosperous relationship? A relationship that thrives, you know, a relationship that is mutually supportive. That's how I would define it. You know, uh, 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 what I meant by pointing to that is that this wealth is not simply material wealth, 
um, that it is the wealth that we experienced from health. It's the wealth that we experienced with friendship, with loving relationship, with family. That's part of our wealth. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. It talks about being a lot more well-rounded. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to just have, you know, financial, um, goods, um, is not considered wealthy in this tradition. It, it, wealth is much bigger in its definition. Thankfully. Thank you. Yeah. Our gratitude to Ellen Grace O'Brien for being with us today. We're also grateful to our audience here, as well as to those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.